Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The city shuts down a community meeting on tiny shelters. What's next? Also on the docket, opioid-fueled 911 calls are up. Stand up, speak out with Matt Dusk. Happy anniversary, Collective Arts Brewing. And Bug Mars? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Well, as we know, Hamilton's homeless crisis is front and center on the minds of many. Last night's community open house to gather public input on these tiny shelters pilot project was canceled due to what city officials called, quote, serious health and safety issues at the meeting site. The meeting didn't even begin after the city locked the doors at seven o'clock and said, hey, we'll, we'll have to do this another time. The Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters Hats Pilot Project is going to put up 25 tiny homes at Strawn Linear Park. That's on Strawn Street East between James and Houston. Here to talk about that plan and what happened or what didn't happen last night is Michelle Baird, the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton. Michelle, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good morning, Rick. It's good to be here. Last night, I guess in a word, disappointing? Yeah, certainly disappointing. It's not what we had hoped to have happened last night. Many people are complaining about a lack of consultation and and maybe a lack of trust in what the city is doing. Your reaction to that? Uh, So I would say that we've heard that as well, Rick, that there was a lack of consultation. I think the challenge for us is we've been trying to find a location for the tiny shelter solution for some time. And um, uh, it's just not been successful. So looking to first find a site that the site could be successful, the project was a fit, and then there was confirmation and commitment from HATS that consultation would happen after the fact. So refresh my memory, did the city consult with neighborhood residents before council approved this pilot project? So not specifically with respect to that site and a HATS location, but rather the broader consultation about whether or not uh, how, how we manage encampments, what sanctioned encampments could look like. Overall, there was support um, for the HATS concept and the idea of tiny shelters. There was support for some type of sanctioned sites, although HATS is the only one that we recommend go forward. Uh, however, it's it's the site in particular that became um, a contentious issue. So, I mean, is that a mistake, not consulting with the city or at least those neighborhood residents before approving the pilot project? Uh, Rick, I, I'm not going to say it was a mistake. I don't think that it was. We had had lots of other sites that we'd looked at over the past 18 months to two years and unfortunately uh, not able to land one. So we were trying to first find a site that could operationally support the work before going through the consultation process. Also being aware that the community overall was supportive of HATS, continues to be supportive of HATS, and it is a promising solution to the growing homelessness problem that we have. As you know, there is a great case of nimbyism, and that would be the case wherever we decide to put this pilot project. Is the plan, because, you know, people are pointing to security, does this plan include a security aspect to it? Yes. So the positives of this plan, and there are lots for sure, is that right now that particular uh, neighborhood, the Strawn Avenue, uh, has a encampment site. But the HATS project will actually be a managed site, so lots more management than you'll see in an encampment. There will be 24-7 staff on site. There will be security provided. There will be programming for individuals who live there. And so I think that what we would we would expect to see that it's, in fact, a much more um, managed and positive environment for the neighborhood. 
than the unmanaged encampment sites that we have right now. Hamilton's Director of Housing, Michelle Baer, joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML to talk about the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters pilot project that is going to put up 25 tiny homes uh, on Strawn Street at Strawn Linear Park uh, as part of, as I mentioned, a two-year pilot project. So the meeting last night doesn't happen. What's the next step? Are we going to have a, a meeting somewhere, somehow? So at this point, uh, Rick, unfortunately, I don't know what the next steps are with respect to last night's meeting. The meeting did have to be canceled as a result of health and safety concerns. Uh, We certainly want to see HATS move forward. We're hoping that they can be a solution for us, and we do need to um, engage with the community with respect to how that happens. But I don't know uh, what that looks like in the the foreseeable future as far as uh, that meeting or rescheduling that meeting. Was the city caught off guard last night? Did, did, did you guys expect that kind of atmosphere? Um, no, I think that we can, you know, all agree that uh, health and safety issues like that, if there is physical or verbal abuse, it's, it's simply unacceptable and it can't be tolerated and it wasn't tolerated. I think that we know that people feel um, quite passionate about this and that it is their neighborhood and people are trying to understand. And I think the majority of folks did come to listen, to understand, to have an opportunity to to express what they were feeling as well. Uh, it's uh, really a disappointment that we landed in the situation that we did and that ended up having to not have the meeting and not have that conversation occur. Last one for you, if a future public meeting is held, because I think, I think this consultation process is important, What's that feedback going to be used for, to iron out any wrinkles, to maybe rethink how this is being done? How are you you going to use this public feedback? I think at this point, the meeting was really intended to do a few things, primarily to share, HATS wanted to share what their operational model looked like so people could understand what the difference is between this particular site and an encampment site overall, what the opportunities are for people that lived there. And we were hoping to answer questions so that people that lived in the area, Hamilton residents overall, if they had questions about the operation, what it looked like, how it fits in, that those questions could be answered. It wasn't necessarily about feedback on the operation specifically versus, of course, there's always opportunity to wrinkle out little details, like you said, fix those wrinkles, and also opportunity um, to hear what, what the neighborhood needs in order to make this a success. And so, unfortunately, we just we didn't have that conversation. Well, let's hope that opportunity does present itself in the near future, whether it's in person, maybe even virtually. we we got to get to the community input on this. Michelle, thank you for Absolutely. your time. Thank you for your time this morning, and uh, best of luck with us. Thanks, Rick. Have a good one. You too. Michelle Baird is the Director of Housing with the City of Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. I just want everyone to get home safe. Well, there was anger, there was chaos, there was confusion, there was, well, a bunch of other words we probably can't repeat on the radio during following last night's community open house on the Tiny Shelters pilot project, which was eventually canceled, didn't really start after what the city called serious health and safety issues at the meeting site, i.e. a lot more people than expected turned up and many of them were not too happy with what is going on and not too happy with the process leading up to this two-year pilot project that will see 25 tiny homes erected at Strawn Linear Park along Strawn Street East between James and Houston. But there is a, and there will be, I am sure, 
a hugely positive impact on the individuals who will end up in these tiny shelters. Here to talk about it is Tom Cooper, the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. Tom, good morning. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Rick. Good to talk to you. Uh, Last night, you know, disheartening, disappointing, unfortunate. You can use a lot of words to describe what went down. What was entering your mind as things were unraveling? Yeah, and and certainly we did have an opportunity to engage many residents. We we opened the doors early at 6.45 or so, and we had tables set up so that local residents could engage uh, with various team members from the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters to learn about aspects of the project. So we were there to listen um, and and, and really get some of that feedback around what people thought about the project. And and many of the local residents were happy to do so, wanted to learn a little bit more about the plans, uh, see the long-term vision for it. Um, But there were a lot of people there who were angry as well and and there were some underlying issues to that that had absolutely nothing to do with hats um i I think it was a wider issue around ongoing encampments in the community um perceived lack of of consultation on on that and a number of other issues and and so there was a lot of anger um and and certainly it wasn't everybody um but it was not conducive to having the type of you know, respectful, calm atmosphere that we needed to be able to engage people and get get important feedback on this project. It's understanding that people are angry at the process because a lot of people are saying, listen, we weren't consulted enough regarding this pilot project. And even with this meeting, it's come after the fact that this pilot project has already been approved by council. And I understand NIMBYism is a factor, not in my backyard. You know, don't don't put it here, put it somewhere else. Um, that is a natural feeling that many people will have. To that extent, though, were you surprised at the level of vitriol that was unleashed last night? I I was, Rick, and you and I have been to our fair share of uh, Ticat Argo games that we're used to this (laughs) type of behavior. But you know what? In in a community consultation where there are, you know, vulnerable people, who are who are attending and and wanting to tell their stories about lived experience of homelessness and then get yelled at by people it, it's unacceptable and i i know it was just a small number of people um but we really need to do better i think as a community uh in terms of being able to talk to each other the we had to um cancel the meeting um there were health and safety concerns there were altercations at the front door um and it, it's really disappointing because it sends a terrible message, I, I think, about being able to engage people about these types of projects. That uh, if you're loud enough, if you uh, have enough bullying behavior, that uh, you can shut these sorts of things down. And that's not the message we want to send. Having said that, we need to ensure the safety of people in, in a facility like this. And, and the, that safety was at risk, unfortunately. And it's 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 a sad day, I think, uh, for me as a Hamiltonian and for many of us to, to have to witness that sort of behavior. We only got about two minutes. I want to talk about the impact of this pilot project because we know it's going to be around for two years. We know there's going to be 25 tiny homes for people who don't have a home. We already know there's, there's tents along this park. So people are already there. How is this plan going to help those people who are going to be in those shelters? Yeah, and, and that's a great question. That's one of the issues we tried to talk about last night. And, and the fact that 
the HATS program, the, the 21 or 25 tiny shelters, uh, will be the only project along that area, along Strawn Linear Park, and, and that the the other encampments uh, would have to relocate to a different area of, of the community. Um, the We're going to ensure that people who are going into the tiny shelters are, are coming from uh, various encampments, but we also want to ensure that they're a good fit for the for the, re the the local neighborhood as well. So we want people who feel that they wanna succeed, uh, that they want to move into more supportive, affordable housing uh, down the road once their lives become more stable. Um, so those were the sorts of conversations we were trying to have last night about, about the transition pro process from a tiny cabin in, into more permanent forms of housing. We weren't able to have that though. And the HATS team is, is really still in a due diligence uh, process right now. We're looking at a number of variables, including the community feedback we're getting, including, you know, our infrastructure needs on, on that on that site. So we'll be uh, we'll be talking as a leadership team over the next day or two and then going back to City Council with um, uh, with some of our thoughts about what happened last night and and how how or if we move forward really quick because we got to go is there a uh, a timeline for when these homes are going to start being built well the plan was initially to get them up and and, and ready by Christmas uh, so later in December and 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 so hopefully that's that's still able to happen but again we're going to have to have some pretty tough and serious conversations about uh, about the process moving forward and and we'll talk to uh talk to the city councillor who's been incredible support on this cameron croach has has really i think uh you know put himself front and center in terms of trying to see this project succeed and i feel badly for him because he has he has tried his best and it's a very difficult situation tom thank you for your time today and uh, we'll touch base sometime in the near future to talk about next steps Thanks, Rick. Tom Cooper is the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A new report out of this a recent report from the city of Hamilton on opioid poisonings. It revealed 257 suspected opioid poisonings between April 1st and June the 30th. That's a lot. In fact, that's that's an increase of 81 compared with the same period in 2022, and it equates to about 19 opioid-related paramedic calls per week, or nearly three a day. And so now there is a new study from McMaster University, which has found an alarming rise in 911 calls and ER visits due to opioids. Ryan Strom is a PhD student in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University and the lead author of the study published in the scientific journal PLOS1. Ryan Strom joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Ryan, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you very much for having me. After completing this research study and, and compiling the numbers and the evidence that you did, how would you describe what you found? There's no other way to put it than than alarming. Essentially, we began running some of the numbers and some of the data uh, last year, and we began to notice a pattern with emergency department visits and paramedic use for conditions that arise from opioid opioid use, and that be acute and chronic, uh, that beyond extend more than just just overdoses alone and and death. We, we understand that research usually concentrates on overdoses and death as it should. It's, it's of paramount interest for the public and for our patients. 
But these patients also suffer from many other conditions, such as withdrawal, dependency syndromes, harmful use, and late-onset uh, um, uh, psychotic disorders. And what we notice is that those conditions are certainly on the rise. Um, what we just want to really want to highlight from this work is that we need to build more sustainable models for these patients that arise more from ju just overdoses alone. And I think that's uh, what our research tried to highlight. So when we're talking about an alarming rise in 911 calls and ER visits due to opioids, what kind of numbers are we looking at? Yeah, so we looked at we tried to look at the years 2009 to 2019, just before the pandemic, and what we found is that uh, ER visits that for these for these other conditions that extend uh, from opioids from all sorts of conditions uh, both doubled in that time period after adjusting for population growth. And what we found for paramedic use, so those who call 911 for transport to the ER and for emergency care, have increased nearly fourfold. Um, that, that's one of the biggest population groups that you'll find uh, in, in health data research. And what we try to understand is, well, if these patients are seeking all this emergency care, are there opportunities for us to provide care in the community and more integration with community partners earlier um, so that they be able to get access to care uh, more often as well as to possibly offset some of these uh, ER visits if we could provide care uh, at a better location. Um, as we know that ER is already overstressed and over overrun, um, is there an opportunity to increase benefits for the patients and, and, um, and for the emergency departments themselves? Talking about a new study out of McMaster University that has found a big jump in 911 calls and ER visits due to opioid use. And Ryan Strom is our guest, a PhD student at McMaster University, the lead author of this study. Is there, were there any patterns or is there a common denominator that kind of cropped up time and time again in terms of your research? What we found is that in there seems to be this major and large spike documented in 2016. For these reasons, we're, we're still trying to investigate and figure out the exact determinations of why they were spiking. But what we're trying to understand is since 2016, 2017, the numbers seem to con rise consistency, consistently amongst a lot of population groups. And we don't see a reason why uh, this, this, this increase is slowing. So we kind of expect it to keep increasing over for years to come, and that's why we're calling on for new strategies and highlight the need for new care models now. We also noticed that around Ontario, there's certain hubs that seem to be major culprits for sort of um, these major opioid-related conditions uh, for people to use emergency services, and those tend to be in the Niagara, Toronto, Mississauga, Halton, and Niagara regions. I just want to point back to the, the city report that was uh, revealed, I think it was last Friday at the Board of Health, where we're looking at nearly three calls a day for paramedics to help an individual who has some kind of suspected opioid poisoning. That has, that has to be incredibly challenging for paramedics. Absolutely. And I would, and I would, and I haven't seen the report just in, in front of me, but I would, I would guesstimate that that may underestimate the total magnitude of opioids, um, their, their impact on paramedics, as well as on emergency departments in Ontario. You know, these these calls, a lot of these patients will use opioids with, with other drugs or alcohol or it have other conditions. So when they go to the ER, it might not it might not be just for opioids, but they are really, really linked to so many other conditions. This really is a health a health uh, concern across so many other conditions than just specifically overdoses alone. But I as, as I mentioned, what we see from the data is that is that the number of overdoses and the number of conditions that extend from opioids are increasingly 
consistent or increasing consistently and we don't foresee a reason why that would steady or slow without uh, immediate intervention and that's what some of this work highlights let's get to those solutions We've got about 90 seconds to talk about what should be done how do we how do we fix this yeah, that that's a great question. So it's it's much easier just to just to call upon the data and take a look at the at, at the issue. But so now that we have the data, now now what? Well, what we've what we've sort of understood from 2009 to 2019 is that there's been a paradigm shift. Is that patients are calling for 911 much more often. And so if we ask ourselves if they're using paramedics to transport to the ED, is there an opportunity to take these patients to alternative care that's beyond the ED? And that way we'd be surpassing the emergency department completely and taking them to specific uh, substance abuse centers or mental health facilities directly. Um, Possibly also more referrals in the community. So upon discharge from the emergency department, trying to link them with community partners for uh, some prevention and try to get them some help in the community, as well as integrating them more, some more maybe specialized paramedics to address these patients in the community before they need emergency services, or or at least at the time of emergency care where we can provide them care, but without any transport. So these are just a couple of, couple of models. Interesting findings from this study. Ryan, thanks for sharing the details with us today and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much for having me. Ryan Strom is a Ph.D. student in the Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact at McMaster University and the lead author of this study that found a big rise in 911 calls at ER visits due to opioids in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Matt Dusk sings Sinatra in support of Stand Up Speak Out at the Burlington Performing Arts Center, September 21st, a fundraising event for CMHA Halton. And with us now in the studio, award-winning, multi-platinum selling singer Matt Dusk. Good morning. Good morning. I love this place. Did I leave anything out in terms of the calling card, the business card? Yes, I have a size nine shoe. (laughs) There you go. Excellent. Uh, Also an award winner himself, a mental health advocate and former CHML legendary broadcaster and the presenter of this show, Ted Michaels. Ted, welcome back. Hey, it's back in this building. Nothing's changed. I think I left a couple of bucks around here on a table somewhere, so I'm just going to go look for that later. We invested it in some low-yield bonds. Uh, Is this your gum under the table? (laughs) (laughs) Great to be back in the studio and great to be talking to you. Well, Ted, we'll we'll start with you. This show has come together nicely. You have a marquee man, a marquee voice in Matt. Tell us about what people who attend the show can can see and hear. Basically, uh, it is a fundraiser, as you mentioned. Uh, the proceeds go to CMHA Halton. We're calling the event Stand Up, Speak Out, because, uh, as you know, well, with the mental health tie-in. And I noticed really after COVID, people got a lot meaner. They were just mm. more miserable about everything. And I think yeah. COVID did that. A lot of people don't share their feelings. And I'm not going to be sexist here, but basically men yep. are really good at masking what they're feeling. And our, our whole thing is... You don't have to go talk to a doctor. You don't have to go talk with her. Talk to somebody. Talk to a friend. Talk to your boss, somebody. Just if you're having problems with stuff, don't keep it in. So stand up and speak out. So that's the event, what it's called. Uh, the doors open at 630 at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. We're uh, going to be in the lobby saying hello and posing for pictures and all that stuff. And then 730, I'll take the stage, welcome everybody, um, thank a few people. Uh, we've got a lot of... Uh, Burlington politicians, Burlington MPPs coming in because they see the value in this as well. And Mm -hmm. then after that, I say, okay, basically over to you. Matt takes over and brings his Sinatra act, his Sinatra songs 
to the stage. So Matt, let's talk about Ted. Uh, we don't talk about, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Sinatra and yeah. the catalog that he made and you get to relive it. What's that like? It's, it's, it's kind of difficult to do any sort of jazz standard without stepping on the toes of Sinatra. Yeah. I mean, him, Tony Bennett, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, they all came from the same catalog of songs. Mm -hmm. I find that with Sinatra's music, because he was so prolific, um, everybody knows at least one song, mm -hmm. like, you know, unless, unless they're under like 25. Right. And then I tell them I wrote those songs. But. <laughs> the brilliance of Matt Dusk coming to the stage. But I mean, these songs are all rooted in, in our, in our history and our tradition. Sure. And, you know, when I take, take the stage for an event like this, it's like the moment where people can kind of drop the mask. They can kind of go back in time. They mm -hmm. can kind of relive those great memories and to see everyone's faces light up. It kind of gets back to Ted's point of like, Dropping the guard, yeah. letting it out. And that's my job as a performer, as the job as the musicians, is for that one moment, let's just have a great time. Mm -hmm. Is there an easy Sinatra song to sing? And is there a really hard one? That's a good question. Um, you know, when you're paying tribute to somebody, it's, it's... You don't want to screw it up, number one. Well, yeah. I mean, I, <laughs> I, that's why I always tell my audience not to sing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you got some person in the front row going, nah, 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 nah. And I was, <laughs> like the Adele person that's in the Oh, my story. gosh. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. it yeah. actually does happen. But, yeah. um, you know, one of my favorite songs to sing was uh, written by a Canadian by the name of Paul Anka. Everyone knows Paul Anka. And it's a song I've been singing for, you know, since I, since I first had a cassette player with a karaoke cassette, right. which was uh, my way. And it's interesting because as a performer and having sung this, this song so many times, it never gets old. Think about it this way. If you knew that tomorrow you were going to exit this world, mm. what would you say? How would you feel? And to watch everybody in that audience, each person there has their own story to tell. Right. So for that one moment, it's difficult, but it's so easy because we're all in it together. Mm. When it comes to that under 30 crowd that you talked about, is do you feel that you're you're introducing this crowd to the greatness of Sinatra? It's funny because a lot of the, the people in the audience probably heard it, this this music in yeah. their 30s. Yeah. So when you see these people, and we do get a younger audience, for them it's like, oh my gosh, this is, they're all dressed up. They went out to the bar, had a bunch of drinks. They're the most <laughs> rowdy people. And the funny thing is that everybody there, when they probably have listened to this at some point, we're them. Yeah. We're all the same. Age is just a number. It, it absolutely is. The fundraising component, Ted, is there a goal in mind? What, what are we um, hoping to see? The, the goal is uh, being kept by myself. Uh, it is one thing about COVID that I find is um, going to talk to sponsors and having people spend money mm. is a little tougher than it has been oh, sure. because yeah. of COVID and it kind of put a damper on a lot. So uh, we are uh, making money already. We do will be presenting a check at some point to CMHA Halton. Nice. Um, ticket sales are now moving. Uh, you know, it's funny because we launched back in May and we thought, okay, a little bit of a drag in July Always, and August yeah. because, yeah, but all of a sudden when Labor Day hit, Boom, it started. So it's, it's what the case is now is that a lot of people don't know about what's going to happen in a few days or in yes. a few weeks. So mm -hmm. now they're like, okay, my schedule's, you know, I might have a little bit of extra spending money. Right. I can support a charity. I can go have a good time. Yeah. So always with us, 
Sometimes it will have like a 50% house and then at the day of it's sold out. Wow. So we always say, if you're thinking about coming, yes. make sure that you earmark it and just go buy the tickets because you're supporting a great cause yes, as well. Yes, that's, that's what I find. It, it's it's getting better and better, but it was it was tough in July and August. But Everyone wants to go swimming, man. I know, that's the thing, Or, right? or to the cottage so or things other do. things. Yeah. But yeah, so so that's what I find to, to Matt's point is um, it's Thursday, September 21st, so it's next week. If you want to go, great. Um, but again, I wouldn't wait too long. Mm. There is not a bad seat in the house yeah, in the oh, beautiful exactly. theater. But yeah. I can tell you that the bottom leveled, like the floors, yeah. were two thirds sold out already. Oh, wow. So get those tickets. We do have people sitting up in the balcony because apparently people like sitting in the front row of the balcony, they're looking down. Oh, I'm going to bring them down. <laughs> You're going to bring down the whole house. Guys, come on. Come on. Jimmy, so, move over two seats, please. <laughs> yeah, use, yeah, thank you. So, lastly, for we, uh, yes. do you know what the money's going to be used for in terms uh, of the Do not. Uh, okay. We gave them a check last year. We basically, it, it's for their initiatives and their programs right. uh, for CMHA Halton, which, of course, uh, like all other mental health ins, uh, places, are, are looking for programs, how to help people. So, mm-hmm. it's basically here's the check. Thank you very much. Spend it wisely. Nice. It's September 21st. It is at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. Matt Dusk sings Sinatra in support of Stand Up Speak Out. Uh, tickets available at mattdusk.com or Burlington PAC, Burlington Performing Arts Center. Yep. So burlingtonpac.ca. It's going to be a great show, guys. Thanks for coming in. Good luck with it. Thank, Thank you. you. Matt Dusk, award-winning, multi-platinum-selling singer, and Ted Michaels, award-winning mental health advocate and show presenter, and obviously former CHML newsman. That should be an awesome show. September 21st, stand up, speak out, join in on the fun at the Burlington Performing Arts Center. I'll be there. Hopefully you will, too, to raise some money for CMHA. Halton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have a special in-studio guest today. His name is Matt Johnston. He is the CEO, the big cheese, the top dog at Collective Arts Brewing. Welcome in. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. You're celebrating 10 years in the business. What what is what is this feeling like? Uh, it feels like I'm a lot older, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, it's, but it's really exciting. We as a company are always looking forward, so it's a, it's a great opportunity to pause and just celebrate everything that we've, we've accomplished over the last 10 years. What would be the highlight that you've experienced over the last decade? Uh, well, I, I guess right at the beginning, uh, when we first released our, our beer and had art featured, artists featured on the packaging, didn't know whether the beer community or the artist community would, would embrace us, and they both did. And I think that was probably the biggest highlight, to know that uh, people were there to support us. And then uh, second is actually opening the brewery in, uh, in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. The, the artistic renderings that are on the cans, what was the genesis behind that? Uh, I I started uh, Collective Arts with uh, a friend of mine named Bob Russell. Uh, I think we sort of disdain the status quo and uh, love all things creative. And uh, artists and musicians have a hard time being seen or heard. And Mm -hmm. so uh, craft beer consumers are experiential. So it just feels like a, a perfect match to match up creativity of beverage with uh, emerging artists. It is also, you know, if you're getting together with friends uh, at a pool, in a backyard, whatever the case is, up at the cottage, it's a conversation starter as well. Hey, what's that beer? That looks amazing. Yeah, it works great when, when you're in an LCBO. Uh, sometimes people are drawn in because they know the beer. Sometimes they just love the piece of art. So yeah. it does work that way as well. Uh, you have an exciting event coming up called a uh, Creative Trip, September 22, 23. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's, it is our celebration of our 10 years. 
and with everything we do, we try and make it about all things creative. So creative beverage, uh, amazing music lineup uh, that ranges from uh, on Friday night, we have Moon King, Chastity, Georgia Harmer, U.S. Girls, and a DJ set by uh, Hamilton's own uh, Dirty Nil. On Saturday, we have Marcy, uh, Delante, uh, DJ SB, and Born Ruffian. So just an incredible lineup of artists on both days. And then in addition to the, the beverage and the music, we also have some amazing artists doing installations and, uh, and uh, you know, art gallery uh, shows as well. Nice. So where is this going to be held? This is at our brewery on Burlington okay, Street. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Awesome yep. location. You got lots of room. Yeah, we're opening up the brewery <laughs> so that people can actually uh, uh, stretch in there and uh, enjoy a beverage beside the tanks all the way through uh, out onto the patio. Nice. Uh, CollectiveArtsOntario.com is the website. Is that where people can get tickets? Uh, th- they can get directed there. There's a, a I believe it's CreativeTrip.com is, okay. is a landing page, but it's also on Eventbrite. And uh, for your listeners, we have a discount code, uh, Good Morning 25 to give 25% off uh, nice. if they purchase through this week. That is awesome. Uh, Matt Johnston is the CEO of Collective Arts Brewing, celebrating 10 years with a, uh, an awesome experience on September 22nd, 23rd, called A Creative Trip. Uh, let's talk about the beer industry. And I know you guys have ciders as well. What are the market conditions like right now? Is it is it <laughs> tough being in this business? It is tough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, craft beer by nature is inefficient. You know, we're we're uh, it's tasty though. It's tasty, but we're you know everything's done very handheld and yeah. lots of ingredients. And right now, uh, all cost inputs are going up, and uh, so it's a lot of pressure to be honest on, on the craft beer industry. Yeah. And um, you know, we're 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 facing a bit of a squeeze here, uh, and there's not a lot of options for where you sell in this province. And uh, so a lot of us. Um, either by desire, which is us, of diversifying even beyond beer into cocktails and spirits and non-alcoholic beverages, and others by necessity are trying to diversify to find ways to continue supporting and growing their business. Is, is now more challenging than even during the pandemic? Uh, the pandemic, you really didn't know what was coming at you, and that right. was stressful. Just as you thought you had your footing under, underneath you, it, something changed. Uh, but I think there's really a continuation as we came out and started to stabilize out of the uh, pandemic. All the inflationary pressures and, and input pressures of really uh, and, and supply chain have really put a, lo- a lot of uh, stress on on brewers. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll say this: Collective Arts Brewing is a popular option because I was at the Because Beer Festival earlier this year, and I, w- I was just basically asking people what's their favorite beer. And, uh, I don't know, I talked to maybe a couple of dozen people, and I swear, 15 to 20 said, you know, collective arts. Like, they just have so many options, so many different levels of flavor, and, you know, obviously love the artistic value of it. So, kudos to you guys. You're doing well. Yeah, thanks. When we first started, people would come by because we took over where Lakeport was, and the brewery was shut down. And uh, people would come by and say, I have no idea what craft beer is. But I really appreciate you opening up in Hamilton mm-hmm. and supporting the community. And uh, and then when we finally did open, they would come back and say, okay, give me something that, you know, that fits my, my taste palette. And it's amazing to see them go from a very easy drinking beer to having double IPAs and sours yeah. and, and evolve along with us. Interesting. So what's next? Uh, ten years has gone by. Let's look forward to the next ten years. What's going to happen? 
Yeah, I think for us, uh, it's uh, you know a, a bit of a continuum. Uh, really, as I said, diversifying our portfolio. We uh, do a lot of non-alcoholic beverages right now, and we're having a lot of fun with that. Um, it, you know, the canned cocktails is really hard because uh, the LCBOs are only retailer, and uh, it's been very hard to get products on shelf. It's more favored to the multinationals, right. so I think we're all fighting to to uh, change that. Um, so really from a portfolio standpoint, really continuing to, to meet the, the taste, taste bud needs of our drinkers. And then, we, you know, we're very proud that we don't only sell in Ontario, but we ship in other places in the world. And Canada is a net importer of brands, mm-hmm. and we're trying really hard to, to be one, uh, one of the few brands that's really exporting yeah. and succeeding. Turning that page is, is yeah. a good thing. Again, the ticket discount code for the Creative Trip, September 22nd, 23rd? Good morning, 25. All right. Makes sense to me. And good morning to you, Matt. Good morning. Thanks Matt for having Johnston me. Matt Johnston is the CEO of Collective Arts Brewing. Find out more information online, collectiveartsontario.com. Take a trip to the brewery on Burlington Street. You'll, uh, you will not be disappointed. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. As you know, Lion's Lair is is going to be celebrating its 13th anniversary coming up on September the 27th. It's annual pitch competition and gala event. It brings together innovation and entrepreneurship. It's going to be held at Carmen's Banquet Center, where the 10 finalists, up-and-coming entrepreneurs who have amazing business ideas, will hopefully be the all-time winner and get some help in building a successful business venture. Not to say that these aren't already successful because they're doing some amazing things. We've already talked to a handful of finalists. More to come this week and next. And today is a finalist called Bug Mars. And I can get into what they do, but I'm going to let the CEO of Bug Mars describe what they do. Nat Duncan is their name and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Nat, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning, Rick. I'm well. How are you? I'm I'm good. I'm really excited to learn about Bug Mars. What the heck do you guys do? <laughs> uh, so at Bug Mars, we've developed a software solution, and it uses AI to help farmers produce a very particular type of alternative protein easier and making their end product more affordable. So this is creating a fake bug that animals can eat? It is creating a real bug. So our software uses computer vision and machine learning. The computer vision side watches the bugs in the farms and notices visual patterns. Are the bugs behaving normally, abnormally? What's Cricket 431 doing over there? And the machine learning side uses data inputs that are set and then using its own brain starts to make incremental improvements based on previous input information. Wow, I just got blown away. How the heck did you come up with this idea? Well, um, I was trying to farm my own bugs, and it's really hard. Keeping bugs alive is hard. I'm sure um, some of your listeners will be laughing right now, thinking this woman's obviously never had an ant infestation. <laughs> but when we're when we're looking at bugs on an industrial scale, it, it's really hard to keep them alive because of um, you know temperature issues, disease is rampant. Uh, so it's really high cost, really high labor. Are these artificial intelligence created bugs healthier for animals? Yes, they would be. Um, so because our AI can monitor their health, we are then producing a healthier end product. Uh, so if insects are showing signs of disease, we can let the farmers know that they can intervene and then the disease does not spread to the whole colony. 
And so what is the go forward plan? How do you see this being ultimately used in terms of a business sense? Yeah, certainly. Um, so we're just implementing the same precision agricultural techniques that we're using right now for things like wheat or soy crops. Um, people are also using similar technology to ours for pigs or cows. And so Linesler comes up uh, from Innovation Factory. It's a pitch competition. You hear about it and think, wow, I got to enter this because why? Well, that's uh, I'm glad I'm glad you asked that question. Um, we are trying to get our software on the International Space Station. We made it to the finalists last year, and what that opportunity will help us do is to accelerate um, the viral load of these insects in space, so that we can uh, gain greater IP for our software. Would that also lead to uh, additional testing and and kind of seeing how this works? in outer space and in the real world? Yeah, that's kind of the end goal, yeah. So how are you preparing for your gala pitch? Uh, lots of practice. Um, it will be my first time pitching with no slides, um, and it's only a two-minute pitch. So trying to help people understand what we do um, when it's an industry most people don't know about is challenging. And so what would it mean if your crown's the winner? Uh, it would be uh, momentous for us. That would mean that money would go towards the costs of trying to get our bugs in space. Well, it's pretty amazing. What an amazing idea and a program. And I wish you nothing but the best and good luck at the pitch competition. Thank you so much. Nat Duncan, CEO Bug Mars. Check them out online at bugmars.com. Fascinating stuff. Innovationfactory.ca, another website you can visit to check out the amazing business accelerator that is at McMaster Innovation Park. And if you want to take in all of the pitches and the gala event itself, the Lions Lair Gala set for September the 27th at Carmen's Banquet Center. Tickets online at lionslayer.com. You can buy tickets, maybe even a table if you have a group who are very interested in this or just want to support some local entrepreneurs and local businesses. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.